We're going to partake of the Lord's table a little while together as we remember and honor the Lord Jesus Christ for what he did on the cross and his resurrection and for what he accomplished on our behalf collectively as the body of Christ himself yielding up his own physical body so that he might create a body of believers, people who are intimately related to each other. Before we uh, partake of the Lord's table together, I invite you to join me again this week in the Gospel of Mark. Only uh, this time, I would ask you to turn to chapter 11 in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, where we find Jesus debating with religious leaders at the end of the chapter. These are the last days of his earthly life. Debating wasn't something that he wanted or something that he chose. They started it, Mom. Yet these are his words, and in fact, they are certainly helpful for us in understanding who he is, his own authority and glory, and the fact that he used words as invisible swords in order to expose hearts. So let me begin for us in verse 23. And we'll make our way down through the end of the chapter. Well, it should be verse 27. That's what I meant to say. Verse 27 of Mark 11. Well, they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? For they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. One of the ways that we judge if something is important is by how many other people like it. A lot of people like it. It's important. Just think about Facebook for a second. If a post gets a lot of likes, it's got to be important. Or we can reverse it and and say that something is bad if a lot of people hate it, when in fact it might be good. I'm thinking of, for example, those uh, people who went into a bunch of Planned Parenthood clinics and did the secretive filming and showed that they really do you know, sell baby parts, and that it's very much a commodity-driven business, a profit-driven business. It's a callous thing, but now they are being criminally prosecuted by the state of California. They're trying to put them into prison. It's a good example because to the carnal mind, getting the crowd to go along with you, that's authority. That shows power, but not for Christ. Now, ancient Israel was very, very different than the ways of our modern life, especially so far removed, both by time, by culture. You might already know this, but certainly you would know that Israel was a place of really different values. Honor was much more important than being wealthy. That's very different than our culture, the be-all and end-all of importance in our culture is having a lot of money. And honor, well, honor in our culture is really all about heaping honor on yourself. You think if you keep up with the Kardashians, you're well aware of that. They don't do anything of actual production, of any, of any actual value. They just heap value and honor upon themselves. And in our culture, hey, that's good enough to get honor from, and, you know, if you bestow it upon yourself. But in Israel and in a lot of parts of the world, if you bestow honor upon yourself, you're looked at as a first-class fool. The only honor worth having 
is the honor of the community, the honor of the people. And in ancient Israel, that was the number one cultural value. We really don't live with that. Maybe some of you who have Asian background or have good friends or family who are Asian would know about this, that honor is the all-important cultural value, not here in America. The greatest thing was to have honor and the esteem from people. And this was especially true if you were a religious leader. You wanted to have a lot of the esteem from people because it was the esteem of people that got them to follow you, to accept you as the authority. You can see this becoming apparent in our text if you drop your eyes down to verse 32. The text begins with the chief priests and the others debating among themselves, but shall we say from men, and then this interesting point, for they were afraid of the people. They weren't afraid of the people beating them up. In fact, they would have had the temple guard right there next to them, being such important individuals. What were they afraid of? They were afraid that they would lose their honor. They were afraid that they would somehow lose their religious authority because, really, Jesus had a lot of religious authority by the fact that he had people with him. In fact, a better translation in verse 32, being afraid of the people, would be being afraid of the crowd, the large crowd of people who were there. This was uh, only a few days after the great triumphal entry when Jesus had mounted a donkey, you remember, and had gone down the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem. He had just the day prior to that done something so dramatic and so offensive that everybody was listening to him. So here it is, Tuesday morning of the last week of his earthly life, and he would have had hundreds, if not thousands of people listening to him in a large crowd. And that is what the background is behind this text. If you are going to visualize this text, the chief priests, elders, and scribes coming to the Lord, him standing there, one man, obviously he would have had disciples there with him, but please picture this, hundreds, if not more likely thousands of people in that massive temple complex standing around and listening to him. And this is the reason why the great religious leaders refused to give an answer to his question. They were afraid of the people. In fact, if you go back a little bit in Mark chapter 11, it becomes a little more apparent about what's going on. Back up your eyes, please, to verse 15. Beginning in verse 15 and going through 17, you have Jesus. Now it's Monday of the last week of his life, earthly life. And he overturns in verse 15 the tables of money and the changers and the seats and everyone selling doves. He refused to let anyone carry merchandise through the temple. I mean, this was a one-man protest shutting down the Walmart of the day. And then he began to teach in verse 17. And notice that there's a crowd listening to him. Verse 17, he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den? And then enter in these religious leaders in verse 18. The chief priests and scribes heard this, began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. It wasn't merely, believe me, that they were afraid that if they arrested Jesus, hauled him off, and figured out a way to kill them, that somehow the people were going to rise up and kill them or destroy them. No, not at all. They were afraid of losing honor from the people, the greatest cultural value of that time. They were afraid of losing face. You've heard of that expression. 
which in religion and politics is the be-all and end-all. It's devastating to lose face before the people, especially in matters of religion. And even apart from matters of religion, in an Eastern culture like this, it's the ultimate downgrade. It's almost like disintegrating your personality, your personhood. In fact, if you would, turn forward to Mark chapter 12. It's all part of the same scene. And Jesus tells the religious leaders a devastating parable, and he sums it up. Excuse me, Mark concludes it in Mark 12, 12, 12. Are you there with me? And they were seeking to seize him. That would have been the chief priests and so on. And yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. Again, you see it now the third time. They feared the people. They feared the people. What they wanted was the people to be with them. We know they wanted to destroy Jesus. We know they were very upset with him, and they had a long-standing beef with him. But they wanted to do it in a way that promoted their own interests, especially as making sure that the people would be with them and that they would not lose face before the people. What you find out in our text that we're going to go through now is that the religious leaders hated Jesus because he possessed authority. And I'll leave it to you to decide where his authority comes from, but I'll certainly make a suggestion by the end. The people certainly recognize the authority in Jesus. So we're going to break it down, maybe four different points, all of them starting with the phrase, the authority of Christ. If you'd like to take notes, our first point is the authority of Christ threatened his enemies. Again, picture a large crowd surrounding Jesus and drop your eyes down at verse 27 of Mark 11. They came again to Jerusalem, that would be Tuesday morning, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, again, thinking of the crowd standing around, it's not like everybody standing around in the crowd is a believer in Christ. Most of them are the uncommitteds. They're wanting to hear more. They like the fact that this is a kind of revolutionary, controversial, lightning rod kind of a figure. They like his teaching, but probably most of them have no intention of obeying what he teaches and following him and proclaiming him the Messiah. That's not the point. The cachet that Christ has is that he can attract such a crowd and hold them. They're always around him, it seems, and they're listening to him, and that's creating problems for the religious leaders. And Mark specifies three groups there in verse 27. The chief priests, there was only one chief priest at the time, but when an older one retired, he retained the title of a chief priest, similar in our culture When the president steps down, he's no longer the president, yet for the rest of his life he goes by the title the president. Same thing in Israel, the chief priests. That's why you can have plural chief priests. These men were the most governmentally, religiously respected men of the entire nation. Following closely with them were two other groups, the scribes, they were the teachers of the law, and then the elders who were essentially the most successful businessmen of Israel. These three groups made up what they called back then the Sanhedrin. The word just meant gathering. But they were a group of men who were responsible to decide religious and legal issues for the country of Israel while remaining under Roman rule. This is the group that Jesus is going to go to, as you know, On Thursday, he's going to be tried late in the night. He's going to be tried early in the morning. On Friday, he's going to be crucified by this exact group of men. To kind of understand their authority, you would need to combine in our country the Supreme Court members and the members of the Senate. And if you could combine the governmental and the judicial like that, then you would understand how impressive these individuals are in the nation. And it's important to understand that. The thing that I want you to notice here, though, 
is how very strange this really is. Seriously, like, what are they all doing here? Don't they have more important things to do, like run the country? (laughs) If they wanted to arrest Jesus, all they had to do is send the temple police and issue the order, and it was done. What you have here is a carefully planned power tactic in order to humiliate Jesus before the crowd, and in doing so, then to strip him of his cultural and religious authority and to take the honor that the crowd gives to him and to take it for themselves. That is why they ask him two questions in order to remove his honor from the people and get it for themselves. They are in verse 28. Join me there. First one is, by what authority are you doing these things? And the second one is, who gave you this authority to do these things? Obviously, they are attacking the source of Christ's authority. If they could be successful in doing that, they can diminish him to such an extent that he's a nobody that he's a self-willed man who only does his own thing according to his own desires and has no real authority to teach or to govern the people. Now, it's the second question that really gets to the heart. The second question is, who gave you the authority? In an Israelite honor-shame culture, the issue is, who grants you authority? And it better be somebody important. It better be the king, or lacking a king, it better be the chief priest, or lacking the chief priest, it better be the governor. But of course, these men, chief priests, scribes, and elders, they know Jesus has none of this kind of authority behind him. Nobody has granted Jesus this kind of authority. And you'll notice at the end of both questions, they refer to these things, by which they mean going into the temple and overturning the money tables, hindering people from going there and buying doves to purchase for sacrifices, and for preaching in the temple. Who does he think he is? There's nobody who's giving him authority, and that's what they're specifically attacking the Lord on. Now, this was all entirely a setup. You might notice back in verse 27, Mark tells you that they came up to Jesus as he was walking. That would indicate probably that the word had got out, hey, he may be leaving the temple complex. You better get over here right away from whatever spies they had out in the temple for them. And so hurriedly, they gather together and they come to him. According to Luke's gospel, when Luke records this event, Jesus had just been preaching and teaching in the temple. So the crowds would have all been there. So, These chief priests, scribes, and elders get him while all the people are all around him and not when he is alone. Now understand, this is not merely them requesting a debate, as if the people back then were all interested in debating minutiae and theological triteness. Like they would come up and they'd say, hey, I wonder what Jesus thinks about this. Let's get into a Facebook debate with him. No, this was not merely a matter of debate. This is a matter of life and death. Tuesday morning it is of Passion Week. By Friday, they will have Jesus crucified. If the Lord answers wrongly, then they will be able to arrest him and actually get him put to death even earlier than Friday rather than on the Passover. And of course, you know, that can't happen to the ultimate Passover lamb. He can't get crucified before then. So Jesus, knowing their understanding, knowing what they're after, is obviously going to delay that event until he's going to hand over to them the authority to actually get him killed, which will happen later that week. Now, another point to make out here. In that culture, when you have a group of individuals, and it's even true in our culture, you just have to picture it, Imagine a group of senators and the president and uh, members of the Supreme Court walking in Washington, D.C., on where the reflecting pool is, and they walk up to somebody and they start talking to him. It would immediately connotate to you that the individual that they are talking to has significant honor. 
He is an important man. Just on visuals alone, these kind of individuals don't get together and go talk to anybody. And even more so, in an Eastern culture like this, they are very careful about who they do and do not talk to, lest they give the wrong impression that by talking to somebody who could be a wrong kind of person to talk to, they grant him honor and esteem, which could create further problems. So there's already a sublime problem going on here. By just talking to Jesus before the crowd, they've granted Jesus a measure of honor. So they know that what their questions immediately have to be is important, devastating, clever, one to put him on the defensive, one to get him in a position where he is feeling attacked, and where hopefully he will give them the kind of answer they are looking for that then they can use for their own purposes. And what would that be? Once he answers a blasphemous, once he gives them a blasphemous answer, immediately arrest him. The crowd is now with you. Take him off and get him killed, and you get everything that you need to have done. So they are really, as you look at these questions, they may not look to you initially as devastating, but they actually are. So that's first. The authority of Christ is that it threatened his enemies. Number two, the authority of Christ goes beyond words to the heart. Goes beyond words to the heart. In other words, it outwitted his opponents. Join me in verse 29. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven? or from men, answer me. Now, two times in his answer, Jesus, listen, commands these men with these two words, answer me. That's the language of command. That is implicitly the language of authority. These are words of authority. Now, to the crowd, this must have seemed rather extreme and certainly showed the Lord as entirely self-possessed and confident for him to command the ruling powers of the nation twice with the words, answer me, shows a sense of authority that is unknown among men. Is it not? Unless maybe it's a mentally deranged man who's off in his own weird thoughts and just happens to say whatever pops into his mind and seems to carry the most influence there. But that's not this man. This is a very unusual man. For him to say twice, answer me, implies they are what? Accountable to him. It's just a measure of manliness, of uprightness, of appropriateness that really shows something about the character of the Lord. So as far as the Jews in the temple were concerned who were watching this, they, here they are, they're watching this authority fight now between one man and the most important men of the nation— and they are themselves know that they are in the most authoritative place in the temple, standing in the presence of the most authoritative body of their nation, the Sanhedrin. And Jesus, with just a few words, has put all these men on the defensive. It's the one against the many, and he's performing brilliantly. In debate, this is called a riposte, it's returning the challenger's verbal thrust against you and parrying that off and then coming back with a thrust of your own. Or to change the metaphor, if this is a boxing match, this is the end of round one, and it just finished decisively for the Savior and badly for his enemies because they figured whatever Jesus answers, he's going to give a wrong answer. We're going to get all this honor, and now they're put at the place of now they have to answer him. Round one, it goes to Jesus. And it comes, interestingly enough, with surprisingly little effort. With little effort, Jesus has painted them into a corner because whereas their question to him was open-ended, who gave you this authority? 
his question to them only allowed them for one of two possible answers. By what authority did John's baptism come? He gave them two options, from heaven or from men. Now, stepping away from the text a little bit, the question itself is a very simple question. It's one of the two. Just if you don't have a heart that's angry against Christ, then you've got a 50% chance of getting it right. It's not at all like Jesus is treating them the way they're treating him. But now this is where Christ's authority goes beyond mere words, where it's not merely his ability to outwit his opponents verbally. The question becomes for us is why, of all the things he could have said, why mention John the Baptist? Why mention in verse 30 the baptism of John? So hold your finger here. Go all the way back to the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. All the way back to the first chapter. The answer is very powerful. Notice verse 4, Mark 1. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Right there is where your record album ought to scratch as the needle gets pulled off it. He did what? Picture yourself, a priest in the temple, and the very fact is that you are part of the system that meets out forgiveness of sins through temple sacrifices according to the law of Moses, according to the traditions of the elders. And here is a man, not in the temple, but in verse 4, in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is actually revolutionary stuff in Israel. And look at what happens in verse 5. All the country of Judea was going out to him. This is the people. This is the honor that they are giving him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. That shows his genuine spiritual power. Been in ministry for a couple decades now. I know how hard it is for people to confess their sins. How natural it is to us to hide our sins and to cover them and to make excuses and to hide I would, I would suggest to you that John the Baptist's preaching and his ministry were exceedingly powerful upon the human spirit. And I would also declare to you that when, in fact, people confess their sins and he baptized them, they experienced God's total forgiveness. And it wasn't through the temple. That's what's so amazing about John the Baptist And by the way, John the Baptist was born in the Levitical household, so he himself would have been raised as a Levitical priest, but he saw the hypocrisy of the temple, and he rejected it, and he went out to the wilderness. And amazement of amazement, the people loved it, they loved him, and they responded. Really great stuff. Now go back to Mark chapter 10, excuse me, Mark 11, the end of Mark 11 there. So, now you know why Jesus would bring up John the Baptist. John the Baptist represented God working the most important of all works, the forgiveness of sin, apart from the leaders in the temple. And here these men are coming to Jesus and saying, by what authority do you do it? Essentially, then, what Jesus responds to them and says is, well, then, by what authority did John the Baptist preach a baptism of repentance in the wilderness? You're having a hard time with me. You've got to settle out that issue first. Now, some people actually think that Jesus was being evasive. In verse 29, he wasn't being honest. He wasn't answering their question. When he said, I will ask you one question and you answer me, they think he's being evasive. 
But actually, here is your Lord in the midst of verbal combat doing what he does. One of the things he does great, he answers a question, and usually a hypocritical question, with a question. Great wisdom. So they asked, by what authority are you doing these things? In other words, by what authority do you shut the temple down? You see their question there back in verse 28. Jesus' not-so-subtle answer is, well, I do that by the same authority that John the Baptist had to preach the forgiveness of sins in the wilderness and not in the temple. And when they ask Jesus, secondly, who gave you this authority to do things, the answer implicit in Christ's question back to them is, well, John the Baptist baptized me and sent me off into ministry. That's my authority. You got a problem with that? That's kind of the idea. It's a not-so-subtle answer. In fact, what it is, it is as honest as honest could be. There is no evasion. There is no prevarication. Unlike the scribes and the chief priests and the elders who had a hidden agenda with their question, there is no hidden agenda. It's all out in the open when Christ speaks. Now, you and I know as Christians, that John the Baptist's authority came from God, but these men didn't believe that. So what you see here now is how Jesus answers hypocrites. This is what he does, and this is why his authority goes beyond mere words to the heart, because you see this over and over and over again. When Jesus answers hypocrites, he uses words that attacks their ongoing guilt and culpability before God making him a really awkward guy to talk to at times. Because a hypocrite would ask him a question, and his answer would always be revealing the underlying sin of the person asking the question. It was an amazing show of authority. He didn't merely outwit these men in debate. He actually touched on their God-rejecting hearts. So what this is, then, is a passive testimony to Jesus' sinlessness. What you're seeing here is a man without any sin in his own thinking, but whose words expose the sin in everybody else's. Here is a man also who cannot be intimidated, but at the same time doesn't play to the crowd. In our culture... If these impressive men had come to a religious teacher and they had said to him, who gave you the authority to do this? And you've got hundreds, if not thousands, gathered around you. It would be high time to do the Joel Osteen thing and say, these people gave me the authority. Jesus doesn't play to the crowd. He doesn't play to our native democratic idea where the winner gets the most votes, and the loser gets the lesser amount of votes. He wasn't playing winners and losers. He was on the side of truth. He was on the side of righteousness. He was really on the side of the fact that John the Baptist had been sent by God Almighty himself and had performed his ministry effectively. And these men had thoroughly rejected John the Baptist. And Something else, by the way, as well here, I think we should notice. He doesn't treat these men rudely. He doesn't dismiss them. At the end of verse 29, he does say to them, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. He will answer them if they merely answer him and his simple question to them first. Some people think that Jesus would have needed to slavishly answer their question. Oh, the most important people of the country come up and they ask you a question. You just need to give them the answer lickety-split. But he wasn't obligated to slavishly answer their questions. He, too, could play the honor game. The very fact that these chief prescribes and elders had come to him publicly, had granted him public honor. And so, by virtue of that, He could take what they had just granted him by coming to him and answer him in this manner, and there was nothing wrong with doing so. The men, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, would have known this. They would have understood that. 
And therefore, it makes Jesus question back to them even more of a loss on their side. This is great stuff, isn't it? There's no hidden agenda in Jesus. Only hypocrites have hidden agendas that attempt to destroy and hurt and malign and slander. They don't ask him questions because they want to learn. They just ask him questions because they want to trip him up. That's what hypocrites do, whether they live 2,000 years ago or whether they live today. They don't want to learn from the most amazing, self-confident, wise man to ever grace the earth. They just want to trip him up as if they ever could. Or you put it this way. Men are complicated. Jesus is simple. Oh, they got all these things going on, all these motives, all these thoughts running in and out of our minds, and he's like singular, simple, straightforward. This is the way your Lord is. And for those of us who have all kinds of thoughts that fly in and out of our minds, that confuse us, that lay upon us with a strong impression that we ought to say one thing or we ought to go and do one thing or that we ought to take one course of action only to have things the next day work out in a different way based on what we're feeling and thinking. Just remember this, your Lord is not like you in that manner. He's solid. He's straight. He's not changing one day to the next based on how your life is going or based on how circumstances went for you today or yesterday or last week. He's the same, simple. Now, by simple, I don't mean stupid, do I? No, 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 no. Omniscient, isn't he? But simple, straightforward. You can trust him. You can trust your Lord. Now, sadly... This issue of religious hypocrisy is very much present today as much as it was back in the New Testament Bible times. Religious people are always fighting for power, fighting for authority in their churches. It's part of the the nature of churches as we are in our schismed condition because we don't have the godliest people in leadership because we like to vote them in, because we like to find out those who are going to be somehow popular because we do all kinds of carnal things in order to put men in leadership. We deserve what we get. So often churches are merely power plays. I'm really comforted by this. I wonder if you are too. The very fact that when Christ called you to, to come to him, that he also called you to a life of complete self-denial, a life of self-death to all yourself, to all your wishes, to all your plans, to submit them all entirely to him, that he can take your life and let it be sanctified, consecrated entirely to him. He can take whatever he wants of you. That's fine. That's the idea behind following Christ. I think that's the most free, joyful, comforting, happy, content way to live in this world. I used to be that kind of disciple for whom it's just whatever Jesus wants he gets. My life is completely taken care of by him. That's the idea there. So that's Sad that this is still really the issue today, all these kind of fights. It's better for us as Christians really to walk away from a fight than it is to pursue a fight, unless the matter is really biblical righteousness. So often fights are over power, not over truth. I'm so glad our Lord went to the cross to show us the pattern. He didn't fight for power. He didn't fight for authority. He yielded it up so that he could make himself an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And by that, we could be eternally saved. One man rejecting the path of hypocrites saved your soul. Glorious stuff. Glorious stuff. How easy Jesus makes it all look when he's upbraiding these men, exposing them as hypocrites in front of the crowd. They give him two questions. He gives them one in return. They try to shame him with all this extra effort. Jesus, far away from shrinking from the challenge, simply embraces and then exposes it. So that's our third point, the authority of Christ, or our second point. The authority of Christ goes beyond words to the heart. Now our third point, it's able to expose liars. The authority of Jesus Christ is able to expose liars. Join me in verse 31. They began reasoning among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men, they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been 
a real prophet. So you get them in the midst of this. And so verse 33, answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. They lie, right? They knew they hated John the Baptist. They knew they despised him. What's more, the crowd knew they despised John the Baptist. But they were fearful of losing face from the crowd of the people around them. If they had been honest men, even in their dishate, even in their hatred, their dislike of John the Baptist, at least they would have said, well, John the Baptist's authority comes from man, and at least been honest with what they actually thought. But they feared men. Verse 32, they were afraid of the people. They feared losing the honor of the people. This is a great dilemma for all of us, especially men, but you ladies as well. But I think this is more of a masculine sin, masculine temptation, to be scared of men. Be scared of what people think, especially what other men think, especially what older men think. Now, there's a reason for honoring men, but fearing what people think about you and fearing for your reputation is such a snare to us men. It can shut us up and shut us down and make us docile little sheep with our tails between our legs and go running the other way when a conflict comes because we fear this so much, losing honor, fearing losing reputation among men and ultimately fearing the pain that comes from it. This is where a good study of our Lord is so wonderful. John the Baptist, what a glorious guy to study. What a masculine guy he is, huh? John the Baptist, what a guy, huh? Man's man. Here, have some, have some locusts, a little honey on top, right? Come on, guys. I mean, this is a, you, you have in these kind of men like John the Baptist, like Jesus a lack of the fear of man that, frankly, what can only be traced to their faith in God. They trusted God. They knew what was right. They knew what was wrong. They themselves lived a life before God on a daily basis of integrity and honesty before Him. And therefore, this is the kind of result that you see. It's kind of lack of fear of man. Powerful testimony to heaven. Well, go back to the beginning of verse 31. Do you see the little phrase there? They began reasoning among themselves. <laughs> Just picture this, okay? These guys, all in one group, they come out to Jesus. They ask their questions of Jesus. Jesus gives them a question in return. And what do they do in response? They go off in a little holy huddle from, away from the crowd. They kind of circle. I wonder if they kind of look like a football huddle. Their backs bent over maybe a little bit. I doubt it. But they began reasoning among themselves, so they had to separate from the crowd. And here they are discussing it among themselves. Look at this from the, from the posture of the crowd. I mean, you're looking at you know, the, the elders come, and then you look at Jesus' answer. And now they go off by themselves. Like, do you see it? They lost. They've already, like, taken a step back, and they look like little girls here, talking among themselves, trying to figure out what they're going to say. I bet everybody in the crowd was thinking, boy, these guys are equivocating. This is not good. They don't even know how to answer a question. Because remember, for everybody in the crowd, it was, a, it was an open and shut answer to the question. See what it says at the end of verse 32? Everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. They already knew. <laughs> this is part of the brilliance of Jesus' question. Jesus asked these men a question by which he had the massive crowd entirely in his back pocket. They were all of the same perspective, Jesus and the crowd. John the Baptist, his authority came from heaven. The only guys who didn't believe it there were the guys he asked the question of. Brilliant, brilliant question from that perspective of honor from the crowd. Now, had the chief priests, scribes, and elders answered falsely and said, well, we believe John the Baptist's authority is from heaven, they would have gained authority from the crowd. They would have gained honor from the crowd in the short run because they would have pleased them and given them the answer that they wanted. But then, if they did that, they would have had to acknowledge that John the Baptist's authority in offering the forgiveness of sins out in the wilderness instead of in their temple was also from heaven. 
from heaven is what they call a circumlocution. It's another way of saying God. The Hebrews, you may know, don't like to say the word God. Very often they would say, and today they'll almost never say it, they'll always say the name or heaven or something like that. And so too, even here, it wasn't quite like it, was, like it is now. But back in those days, if you wanted to refer to God, you wanted to do it in a way that wasn't trying to emphasize an undue amount of authority or make somebody uncomfortable. You could just say the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God, or you could just say, was his baptism from heaven or was it from men? You get the picture. Just a circumlocution, a way of saying those things. Kind of is respectful on the Lord's part to say it that way. So because these men don't believe in John the Baptist, there's no way they're going to answer them. And so what you see in their answer in verse 33, when they say, we do not know, that just shows them to be liars. According to their own beliefs, they do know. And it's that John the Baptist's authority was from men, and they're lying when they say that. Now, it's easy enough for us to see. I think it would have been perfectly easy for the crowd to see that these men's hearts are filled with lies. They cover their lies with their religious callings, and it was so easy for Jesus to expose them before the crowd. In fact, Jesus didn't have to expose them. They exposed themselves. So what do we say to this? Round two, I need somebody to strike the bell. Ding. Round two goes to our Lord. And then, of course, it all applies to us as well, doesn't it? God knows every lie. And the fact is that apart from repentance and faith in Christ, every one of our lies is going to be punished at the bar of the Almighty. We are wise to come to Christ. We are wise to confess our sins and to place faith in Him and His sacrifice and resurrection from the dead. All right, that's the end of the third point. The authority of Christ is able to expose liars. We've already seen that His authority threatens His enemies, that His authority goes beyond mere words to the heart. We now see how it exposes liars. And lastly, his authority is answerable to no one on earth. Look at the end of verse 33. Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Very strong statement. To tell that to the religious leaders of the people, to tell that to the chief priests, to the scribes, to the elders, I won't tell you. I will not answer your question. This right here is round three. This is the final bell. Jesus wins. This is game, set, match. Over. He diminishes and sweeps away their honor by refusing to answer their question. He knows, as does the reader of Mark's gospel, that ever since the beginning of his ministry three years ago, these scribes down in Jerusalem were teaching that Jesus' authority came from the demons, the very opposite of God. Mark 3.22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. So from the beginning of his ministry up in Galilee to now at the end of his earthly ministry down in Jerusalem, the source of Christ's authority has always been one of the talking points for the men, the religious leaders of Jerusalem against Jesus Christ. This is what the scribes have been telling everybody. And the scribes, these are the religious leaders of the nation. They're better than PhDs. And they were telling everybody now for years that Jesus' authority is from Beelzebul. It's like saying he's Satan's right-hand man. There's no difference. Everybody would have understood that. He gets his power from Satan. Jesus threatened their positions, their theologies, their lies. They were in religion merely for the glory that they could get out of it. And sadly, it appears as if they all died this way, with all of their lies outstanding. And they shall one day give an account to the Lord Almighty for their arrogance. How sad, isn't it, that the caretakers of Judaism were so ignorant 
when it came to the most important things and they themselves so filled with lies. They had a great chance to learn from the Son of God Himself right there. But He played them like a violin without being sinful in any way. And so they walk away. They will walk away after Jesus tells them in the next parable, humiliated and defeated. Let's close it this way. There is an implicit warning in this text that if you sell merchandise into the religious marketplace, you're always going to have to make adjustments to satisfy your customers' demands. In fact, in the religion business, the crowd is everything, whether you're talking about ancient Israel or today. If you don't give them what they want, they will vote with their feet, and you will have no more business on Sunday. But this is not the path for disciples of Jesus Christ. We are called to proclaim the truth from a pure heart and a clear conscience. Only evil men want to make your church a place where hypocrisy is promoted. Disciples don't. We crave and yearn for a place of divine simplicity, where holiness and honesty and humility are lived out in the flesh. Jesus never, ever had to play to the crowd. Beloved Christians, nor do you ever have to play to the crowd. Never. If Christ is your portion in this life, you won't have to play to the crowd. Because we know who has the monopoly on truth and on authority and on power. It's all Christ. In fact, He not only has the authority... He is the authority. So let's pray as we prepare our hearts. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the wonderful truth in this passage. Thank you for the way it reveals the glorious Son of your own beloved begetting. And we thank you, Father, that we have so much to glory in through him. And though at times we may be persecuted and hated by religious individuals, yet we experience that which he most certainly did to a greater degree. We thank you for that. Now we turn our our hearts and attention to honoring your Son through the partaking of the bread and the cup. We want to do that, Lord, together as the fruit of his victory on the cross, even us believers. We thank you, Lord, in your great name. Amen.